Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fully Grown Podcast, Ministry of Turner Christian Church. I am Pastor Jack. I am Pastor Rachel. And I'm Pastor Matt. Hello and welcome in everyone to episode 110 of the Fully Grown Podcast. And uh, I'm here with Pastor Rachel and Pastor Matt. I'm Pastor Jack and we're excited to be with you this morning. Today, instead of uh, kind of reflecting on something from the service or something earlier in this week, we had the idea of Pastor Matt kind of asking uh, Pastor Rachel and I a question since we will be asking him questions later on. And so uh, Pastor Matt is going to ask us a little bit of a question here and we'll chat about it for a bit. Yeah, part of the vision for this podcast is to be a conversation uh, about how we practice our spiritual life every day of the week, how we, we take what we learn from Sunday morning and, and how we grow on a Sunday morning and and involve it in every day. And so I'm just I just wanted to have a conversation and ask each of you, uh, when you're in your other days of the week, what is and you, and you were wanting to connect with God, what is your go to kind of spiritual discipline, your go-to practice that you've had the most success with or that is just the first way, place you go to connect with God? Yeah. So um, anyone that's ever spent time with me personally or professionally uh, tends to notice very quickly that I, I do not like to stay still. And, um, you know, sitting in a long meeting or um, – a long lesson or it gets really hard for me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a go and do it person. I'm action oriented. Let's, let's get up and move. Let's um, even if I have people over to my house, like, great, we've eaten dinner. Let's move to the living room. Let's play a board game. Great. We've done that. Let's go on a walk. Um, and I also drink a lot of coffee. And <laughs> so uh, one of the best things that I can do, particularly when things are just feeling chaotic or overwhelming or I've been go, go, going, and I feel like my thoughts aren't very calm, is, is I usually start by laying on the floor um, if I'm at home. I'll just lay out on the carpet. Um, I'll spread my limbs out, and I'll just calm my breathing, and um, I'll think about, about being in my body, you know, the, the body that God has given me. I'll think about the toes that God has given me and the fingers that God has given me. Um, sometimes, other times, I'll just... Um, I'll just really contemplate on what it is to be still before the Lord. Um, sometimes I do, um, a go-to one that I have is, uh, uh, a breath prayer, um, be still and know that I am God, you know, God in the chaos of the world, I'm going to be here still with you and you're going to hold me. And, um, you know, I, I do have trouble staying still. So my goal is always like, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes and, and maybe I make it through five. But um, those five minutes, I will get up from that and usually feel like completely different. Like my mental shift, my attitude shift, I'll feel more encouraged. I'll feel more held by God. It's really amazing just the the physicality of stopping and being still with God, what that what that does for me. Yeah, it's it's funny that that's what it is for you because it's pretty similar to me. Um, you know, I, it's just, it's I don't know if it's from the the same same space of like I'm always action oriented. My mind is just always going a million miles an hour, and so it's just like thinking about what I need to do or what I should do, what I you know all these different things. Um, given that I'm not always a person that's like I need to do this, I'm gonna go do it. It's like I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this over and over and over again in my head, and so my mind is just always going and going and going. And so what I often have to do is I have to, and, uh, you know, maybe if, 
if anyone that's listening has has taken a step into my office uh, a couple months ago, I had these kind of these this list of things that I, I tried to do every day. And one of those things was, uh, it was up on a whiteboard, one of those things was give myself permission to disconnect. Because if I don't give myself the permission to do that, I don't feel like I'm actually able to in a healthy space because I'll just, I'll do my best to disconnect. But at the end of it, I'm still thinking I shouldn't be doing this. I have other things I need to be doing. And so with that, it's just kind of like this idea of I need to slow down and, you know, slow my breathing and just, just kind of, in a sense, put away everything else and just say, okay, I need to be just with Jesus with myself at this time. And so I'm giving myself permission to do this, which sounds strange, but that, that giving myself permission thing is very important. Um, because part of this, my mind going a million miles an hour all the time is what are expectations that others have laid on me? And if I don't give myself permission, then I maintain those expectations and say, I shouldn't be doing this for myself. I should be doing these things for other people that I need to get done. And so that, um, at times, is very important to me. And that's kind of the thing that I come back to quite often is, let me just just stop and, and take a second and give myself permission to be with Jesus for a few moments because, guess what, that's going to be really, that's going to benefit me very well moving forward into the rest of the week or whatever I have going that day. And so, um, you know, it sounds like Rachel and I kind of have some similarities, but also some some differences within those things too. So that's what I'd say. Yeah. You know, I, I would say, I, I don't know that I have one where I could say, this is where I found a lot of success because I'm not sure that I have found a lot of success with a particular approach. Um, so much as trying approaches. Um, I have a bunch of different prayer books on my shelf and I couldn't tell you which one I, I've used the most because I'll use them in different seasons and they'll work for a certain amount of time. And maybe I fall out of the habit and I have to get back into something and maybe try something different. Um, I find that having something to follow, having something to like prayers to read or, or a structure to kind of form what I'm doing helps me because if I'm trying to do it just spontaneously in my own head, I am just super easily distracted and I also don't end up, I think, hearing as much from outside myself because it's also really easy if it's just what's happening in my head to just have it actually be just me talking to myself instead of making room for God to tell me something that I maybe don't want to hear. Um, so I found that using devotionals and prayer books um, and trying to have some kind of rhythm in morning and night has been helpful, but also difficult personally to maintain. I would say I have to be careful here because I think this is a pitfall for pastors. I've also been reflecting on to what degree my study can be um, worship of God or connection with God, not necessarily study for, um, for a sermon, but I also will spend time studying just in general, like studying parts of scripture that interest me or that challenge me and, and a lot of times my sermons are based on things that I was studying for myself, you know, a while back. And that's what gave me the idea. And I have found that in, in a lot of that study, um, there is, some, there is connection with God as I'm 
what motivates me is is my fascination with with who he is and wanting to know more about him and that excites me that interests me and that drives me forward and so i do think that there is a way that i can worship god with my brain I don't want to get sucked into the idea of just saying, well, okay, my study is my worship. So I've got that box checked off because I think that it requires a lot more than that. But I think I've been giving myself permission to, to see that as an act of worship, even if it isn't the only, uh, a sufficient act of worship on its own. Um, it still has a lot of meaning that way because it's part of how I fall in love with God is getting to know more about him and being blown away by his word and by um, what he teaches us. Yeah, and I think that's that's very very real. I mean, uh, when when I was in Bible college, there was always this warning of you know do do devotions outside of just you know what you're learning in your classes, whether that be in Acts or Galatians and James we had in Bible college or Romans, because if you just allow that to happen, then the Bible becomes you know a textbook is what we always kind of would say. Um, but there would be different times where I would find that that study and going through a, a scripture and just really studying hard through it would be like invigorating and exciting and oh this is awesome and I'm just following falling in love with Jesus in this way. But there would always always be times there would also be times where I would be like ah oh, I'm just I'm missing something else I'm like oh I didn't really do a devotion today and I need to just spend time devotionally with Jesus and so just to yeah kind of jump on board with what you were saying there yeah. Like I, I found that in a, in a place I probably didn't expect it, which is in studying Leviticus and the sacrificial system, because as I was digging into what that really means, it informed so much of how I understand who Jesus is and what he did. And so I found myself studying this very, you know, I, I guess, academic topic. It wasn't, you know, it didn't seem super devotional, but what was exciting me and driving me forward was what I was discovering about God and, and about specifically about what, what it meant about Jesus. And I realized that that was some of the, the most, those moments had been some of the most passionate moments for me about knowing God. Um, but I think that needs to be followed up with time in prayer and time in, in, in worship and, and, and confession and, and all the other things that make for a fruitful relationship. For this segment today, uh, Pastor Rachel and, and I have prepared some questions over the, the book of Numbers that we're going to ask Pastor Matt. And uh, I know we're interested to see some of his answers to these questions. And I'm going to start off with a question that I have. Um, we're kind of going in order of the book, and mine should be first because it is on the name of Numbers. And uh, so my question just kind of comes down to, is this is this a good name for the book? Because um, I've, you know, our English translations sometimes with our introductions or, or our breaks in Scripture are pretty rough. And so I'm wondering if Numbers is a, is a good uh, title for this. And if it's not, what might be an actual good title for this book? So the oldest, the, the reason it's called Numbers is because the book of Numbers kind of begins and, and ends with a census. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, it's emphasizing the, the, how you start with one generation, but the story ends with the next generation that replaces them and is about to go into um, uh, the promised land. The, the census seems to be reflecting on, and that whole opening passage 
seems to be showing us the effect that the law has had on the people because before they were given the law at the golden calf they were it was just chaos and now that they've received the law they're all in order they're all in a, a organized society everything they're able to count everybody and, and they're able to march away in an orderly fashion and then it descends into chaos again and everything is just messed up in the middle which numbers is a very action-oriented book a lot of things happen in it so that's one of the reasons why numbers is is a uh, misleading name but then at the end when they've when god is ready with the new generation again they're orderly and they're counted and they're ready because this new generation is obedient to god and they're going to follow him in into the future so the census does play a really important role in the themes of the book but numbers is like one of the most boring names you could use the reason why we the historical reason why we call it numbers is because one of the earliest names used by uh, Jews for the book was the Book of Reckonings, which sounds cool, except that they don't mean reckoning like like bringing a reckoning. They mean reckoning like counting. So it's the Book of Counting, which might be worse than numbers. The Now, and for a long time, the traditional Hebrew name for the book has been in the wilderness, which is vastly superior to either of those names. That word, uh, that comes from the first noun in the book which is in the wilderness. Uh, in Hebrew, it's uh, Bemidbar. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's common in Hebrew to call a book after, and actually just in ancient cultures, to name a book after the for opening words. Um, that's why we call Genesis, Genesis, because it's the Greek version of in the beginning. Um, so that's where the name came from uh, that we use, and it's just very misleading because there's so much action in the book. And in the wilderness is a much, I think it's a much more accurate way to describe it and probably more inviting than numbers. So especially since you start with a census and you wonder, is the rest of the book just like this? And then you quit reading. Yeah. You skip over to Joshua. Well, if you just look at the name numbers, you know, it's like, why do I want to read this? It's just about, you know, censuses and all, the, all those things. But is that the plural of census? Senses. Senses. Sensei. I really want it to be sensei. I <laughs> Didn't no we idea. talk about this before? We did. And then I, yeah. I ended up with the word sensei. And like, well, um, I have an internet machine. Should we find out what the plural of census is? That might be helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, just... Censuses. 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 Okay, very good. That seems wrong. I know. <laughs> but it's the first result on Google, so it must be true. It is the English language, after all. So yeah. many things are wrong with it. So many English things language. are wrong with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's right. wrong, then it's probably accurate. <laughs> so, Rachel, I believe you have the next question. Yeah. So if we skip up to uh, Numbers chapter 6, my Bible, it's helpfully labeled the, the Nazarite. Um, I, I've always had so many questions about this section. And I actually worded this question to Matt as, what even? <laughs> Just because... Um, I don't feel like a lot of context is provided. I feel like God speaks to Moses in a way that to me implies that um, there's some cultural understanding already of what this is. Um, maybe I need to be corrected on that, but that was kind of how I had read it. And then um, there's so many details provided, but I'm not even quite sure what the purpose is for this. Um, and, uh, and then I know too that I know that some people do this still now, that this is a tradition that some people engage in. And we have at least one instance in the New Testament of, of Paul engaging in, in this thing. So I would love to know more about it. 
Yeah. So first of all, I think you've hit on a really uh, important thing to notice about many, many of the things we encounter, most of the things we encounter in the law, which is that they were not invented by God, or at least they weren't invented at this stage in the story because people are already practicing these things. Because you're exactly right. It, chapter six begins, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must, and it gives the instructions, assuming they already know about this vow, they already know what Nazarite means as if it's an existing thing. And commentators will say it must have been something that people already did. The same thing happens when you get into the sacrificial system, that God is not necessarily most of the time telling them about new sacrifices. He's telling them about how to perform sacrifices that were already part of the culture in which they lived. And so the Nazarite vow seems to have been a uh, part of the culture already. And what God is doing is he's not inventing a new thing. He's teaching them how to do that thing in a way that reflects God. So there were probably similar vows similar to a Nazarite vow. Well, we know there were in other cultures, uh, vows of dedication. But to be dedicated to another God would have looked different. It would have communicated something different. And so God is saying, if you're going to do this thing, here is how you do it in a way that reflects me and shows people that you're dedicated to me. Because ultimately, that's all the vow is. It is a vow of dedication. The word Nazarite means set apart, a person who is set apart. And um, so I would say that this is seems to be the modern equivalent or the ancient equivalent of uh, becoming a monk or a nun, except that it's not lifelong. Um, what it seems to be doing is giving nor, uh, Israelites who are not part of the priest, the priesthood, who are not part of the tribe of Levi, it gives them a way to dedicate, make a special dedication of themselves to God. So that, and, and uh, of a particular amount of time. And it seems to just be, it's not something that is obligated of them, but it seems to be something that comes out of their desire to know and love God. And so they, this person has a conviction that I want to, I want to be dedicated to God. The same way in churches, in traditions that have um, monast, uh, monastic, you know, monks and, and nuns, it, there's no rule that people have to enter those orders. It's a person decides in the course of their own relationship with God, this is what I want to do. And so God says, there's three things that you have to do as a Nazarite. One is you have to abstain from alcohol or anything, really grapes, which were the main source of alcohol for them. You have to avoid touching dead bodies and you have to uh, not cut your hair. Now, the, the not drinking alcohol and, and being, uh, not being associated with alcohol seems to be connect, connected with uh, basically the importance of sobriety of being sober and being clear-headed when you're following God. Uh, it's the same thing. The, the priests have a similar rule, except they're only told not to touch alcohol when they're serving in the temple or the tabernacle. And we talked about it uh, in the sermon um, two weeks ago. About that. That's because the, they are supposed to have a clear head as they're teaching Israel how to follow God. The Nazarite seems to be doing the same thing, that the alcohol isn't necessarily evil, but it is a, a potential distraction or a potential way that they could, uh, you know, they, they need to be serious and on point the whole time that they're in this vow. The idea of not touching dead bodies is, seems to be associated with the idea that God is life. He is a God of life. He's not a God of death. So if you are set aside for God, you should not be associating with death. And then the not cutting your hair just seems to be a visual indicator to people to show that you're a Nazarite. 
so that it's your accountability is not just yourself, but other people will know. So if they see that you haven't cut your hair in a while and you're touching dead bodies um, or drinking alcohol, they'll know that you're breaking your vow. All of this comes back when we get into the story of Samson, because Samson has that visual indicator that he is a Nazarite because he is dedicated as a lifelong Nazarite and he breaks every one of his vows. He touches dead bodies, he drinks alcohol, and finally has his hair cut. And that means that whenever somebody saw that he touched a dead body or they saw him drinking alcohol, the hair, the fact that his hair was uncut showed them that he was breaking a vow to God. So that's a big part of Samson's story. Um, yeah, so um, the, last, the last interesting thing about the Nazarite vow, as you alluded to, is that Paul seems to have taken one because in Acts 18, 18, it says that he mentions just as part of the story, he got his hair cut because he had taken a vow, which seems to mean that he reached the end of his Nazarite vow. So he got his hair cut, which would have been a big deal. That also seems to be part of the reason why he went to the temple when he returned to Jerusalem. And that's where he gets arrested and he goes through all the rest of the story of being on trial. It's, it's because of that vow. And that's controversial to people who want to say that Paul didn't practice Judaism anymore, didn't practice anything in the law of Moses. But I don't think that's necessarily what happened with Paul. It seems like Paul says, you don't have to keep the law of Moses, but that doesn't mean that the things in there are necessarily wrong. It seems that there is still value in making dedications to God and saying, I'm going to dedicate this time to God and, and that kind of thing. And so I don't know that I would necessarily say we should bring back the Nazarite practice because I think the symbolism has changed. So it wouldn't mean the same thing to people. If you don't cut your hair, that doesn't tell people much in our culture. Um, so, but modern equivalents of that, you know, choosing times to specially dedicate yourself to God, I think are very valuable and definitely something we should do. I don't think it's necessarily wrong for someone to do explicitly a Nazarite vow, but um, I think we, there are modern ways we can do that, that are, that would look different and would be just as meaningful. Thank you. That was that was very helpful. <laughs> Do you happen to know anything about the differences in spelling? Is that just translation errors? Because sometimes I feel I feel like I've seen Nazarite with A's instead of I's. My guess would be that that is because um, ancient Hebrew didn't have vowels, and so um, and also it's you're translating from one language into another, and so how you spell things in English. Um, you could like some of the vowel sounds are kind of in between. So you could choose either way. You especially see that with Chinese and Japanese, like there are completely different ways to spell things because the sounds in those languages don't line up with English sounds. So like, how do you spell je in English letters? You know, so there's different sure, choices sure. that people make. Uh, so that would be my guess. Um, I don't know that there's anything, any significance tied up in it. Cause again, there were no vowels in the old Testament. Fair so. enough. That's helpful. Thank you. My second question comes way down the line in chapter 17. Um, so the uh, <laughs> it's called the budding of Aaron's staff. And uh, God has Moses put 12 staffs um, in the tent of meeting. And each man... Um, representing each tribe has their name on the staff. And uh, God says, the staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. And the idea is that God's going to very demonstrably choose someone, and then it's going to stop all the grumbling problems that they've had among the Israelites. 
Um, and, uh, <laughs> and Aaron's staff sprouts overnight. Um, but it doesn't only sprout, it buds, blossoms, and it produces almonds. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I read this story and I think, you know, God could have chosen, um, Aaron as his, uh, priest, right? This is what he's choosing. Basically. Yeah. yeah. God could have chosen Aaron as his priest in any way or demonstrated to the, the tribes of Israel in any way that he was choosing Aaron and, and he chooses to sprout blossom and bloom, <laughs> um, and, uh, his staff and then has it produce almonds. And I, I've kind of wondered, you know, is there significance to the almonds? Um, numbers goes out of its way to, to mention that it produced almonds and, and just kind of what that was about. Yeah. So the context of that, that particular challenge is that the, Israelites had just gone through basically a democratic rebellion where the um, Korah and his followers, they say, um, the whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why have you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? Basically saying that the, the people should lead themselves. We should be some form, not actually a democracy, but some, you know, that this is a popular rebellion trying to say that Moses and Aaron should not lead. Um, someone else should lead. And so God puts that down. But then he's making the point, he's reaffirming the fact that he has chosen Aaron to be, uh, Levi to be his tribe that uh, that serves him directly and Aaron to be the leader. And there is a ton of symbolism going on here that you don't see in English. Um, one of the, first of all, the reason why he uses staff seems to be that both of the Hebrew words, like Hebrew has very few words. So every word means multiple things and it can sometimes be pretty random. Both of the words for tribe are also the words for staff. So there's an association between staff and tribe, which is probably the reason why he chooses staffs to be part of this exercise. Um, now, I did, I did some research into a new commentary I have that, that shows what early Christians thought uh, what they said about the Bible. And they had an interesting, the, the, this guy named uh, Caesarius of Arles from the 500s AD. Um, he thought that the almonds were this elaborate symbol for the law because there's this bitter outer shell that you have to discard. And that's like hard laws like circumcision. And then there's some less, there's some tough material under that. And that's like the moral laws that are good, but you, sometimes you have to discard those but inside is the sweet is is the 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 fruit and that's how it points towards jesus and which is is that's clever. a lot it's clever <laughs> i don't think that there's any reason to believe that that's actually what god was communicating right because um, that that's a common approach in the early in early christianity was to take everything as a parable or as an analogy if you actually look at the symbolism of the book however you find something else which is that um uh, you also find almonds in the symbolism within the tabernacle. There are the, the menorah is an almond tree. It's a gold almond tree. It has almond blossoms on it. And almonds were the first plant to blossom in spring. And so they're they're associated with um, with spring coming. They're also associated with watchfulness and being ready. Um, but the connection there, it could be the basic connection is just it sprouts almonds because there's almonds in the tabernacle and he's choosing who's going to serve in the tabernacle. There could also be symbolism in the fact that um, it represents new life. 
another possible connection is the fact that um, this is a staff that bears fruit, even though it's not planted in the ground. And the Levites are a tribe that has no land. And so it's uh, one of the commentators I read said there's, it's possible that there's some symbolism there in that the, the tribe with no land is going to take on this task of being chosen to bear this fruit. And so he symbolizes that with a staff with, that's not in the soil bearing almonds. But I think, I think the, the one thing that seems very clear to me is that the almonds on the fact that it sprouts almonds clearly connects it with the tabernacle where there are almond trees inside. And so it's a way of showing not only is he choosing, he's not just choosing, um, he's not just choosing Aaron for anything. He's choosing him to serve in the tabernacle. And it's also really, whatever it is, it's really intense. Um, it's a really intense symbol because it terrifies the Israelites. They freak out when they see it. They're, they're afraid that they're going to get, all get destroyed. Um, I forget which verse that's in, but if you find the way. Verse 12. Um, we will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Yeah. They freak out at the sight of almonds. So <laughs> whatever the imagery, it's powerful. It's fun. Just never thought of almonds as terrifying before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah me neither. But isn't, isn't there a poison that you get from almond plants? I, I, I don't know about that, Matt. Why sure, do you know about that? <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure, like, all right, I'll let me use my internet machine again. Oh, goodness. There seems to be very random things that are poisonous in life, though. There is a... Cyanide, yeah, cyanide. Oh gosh, um, is in almonds. Yeah, and I mean not like what you eat at home, but like <laughs> in the plant. Um, wow. If I... you've learned anything today, uh, you are slowly <laughs> killing yourself by eating almonds. <laughs> that would be the wrong takeaway. <laughs> yeah, <I'm kidding>. yeah. <laughs> so when you look at this this kind of crazy story, mm -hmm. where you know whether one of our guesses is accurate or not about what was actually happening. Clearly it was significant to these people. What, what can we take away from it about who God is or, or what should we be learning about this for our own lives? First of all, I think sometimes um, reading the Bible can be like going to a sport you don't understand, you know, like every, I don't know what just happened, but everybody's super excited about it. I think they scored some kind of point or they stopped the other team from scoring some kind of point, whatever it was, it was good. Like that's when I, if I ever watch cricket, that's my like, Oh, I guess that was good. And I think sometimes it's enough when we're reading just to understand that to see, well, I don't know what the almonds mean, but it's a big deal. And that can get you through the story. What seems to be happening here is that it's, um, and this may be something that's hard for us in the modern world to hear. And maybe that means it's important, but this story seems to be showing that God chooses who he chooses and we don't get to just um, force him to, to change that decision. Um, also that just because God chooses a whole people doesn't mean he chooses them all for the same thing because Korah's logic is God, we're all God's people. So we, all of us get to do whatever role we want. It shouldn't just go to Moses and Aaron but God clearly has chosen specific people to do specific things. Now that idea has been abused a lot in the church at different times where people have enforced that and said, I am the one that's often one of the markers of a cult is when you have a person who just dominates everything and can't be questioned. But I do think there is some sense in this story that we're reminded that just because we're chosen doesn't mean we're entitled. And there are times when God may say, actually, no, this one isn't, 
for you, I've chosen that person to do this thing. Um, and that doesn't mean you're not part of God's people. That just means that's not your calling. Uh, so when I read that, that's, that's part of what I see from it is that God does choose, have specific tasks for specific people. And that means he doesn't have those same tasks for other people. And sometimes we have to accept that, um, but also be encouraged by the fact that that means we have our own tasks that we're called to, because every, every member of Israel had a reason, had a purpose in God's plan. And so it wasn't that nobody else mattered. Um, the plan would not have been fulfilled if just Moses and Aaron had gone into the promised land. Um, but they did need that leadership role in that particular context. Well, my, uh, my final question, if we are finished discussing that topic. I, I, sorry, they're both looking at me with wide eyes because I have a very specific expression on my face when I'm contemplating saying something. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually just thinking of um, coming here because um, uh, at the time when I started to have interviews with Turner Christian and started to explore this as as an option, um, a, a church plant was starting up that um, was really exciting. And, um, and I... I wanted to be the right person for it just because it, it was, it was um, very innovative. Um, it spoke to a lot of my passions, not necessarily my strengths, but my passions. <laughs> and, and, um, and I was really kind of envious of, of the person that was the right fit for that situation. And it was really hard, but at the same time, it was so clear to me, like, this is not what I have called for you, called you for. And at that time, I didn't know for sure if I was going to end up here, but I knew that the process that I was going through with Turner Christian was incredibly important. And that was where God wanted me. And I was extremely excited about this, but it was also like, why am I not there? You know, like, yeah. why am I not the yep. right fit for that amazing opportunity over there? But I absolutely wasn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and it was a really interesting process to go through of, of God saying, no, I'm going to take you over here and I'm going to put someone else over there. Yeah. 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 Well, now I guess we <laughs> move to my final question. Um, I was I was hoping to give a little bit of context with this question because I don't want to just throw these names out there and then have someone get caught up within the details of what's happening in this story. So I'm going to try to give the briefest of summaries I possibly can. If I say anything incorrect, please correct me. Um, so essentially, a couple of the important people that we have here is Balak, who is the king of Moab. And we have uh, Balaam, who, as far as I can tell, is, is considered a diviner, which doesn't necessarily mean he's a believer or is, is uh, follows God, uh, to say. Um, but Balak is worried about the Israelites and their power, and so he wants he sends for Balaam to curse the Israelites. And Balaam, I guess, has an encounter with God where God says... Um, where, where Balaam's like, I'm just going to say what, whatever God tells me to say. And God tells him, don't go. Balaam still goes. And God is like, I could have killed you, but I stopped your donkey three times. Um, and then ba God says, You're, you can go to Moab with Balak. Just make sure that you say what I tell you to say. And then we get several different messages from Balaam where he's essentially saying the complete opposite of what Balak wanted him to say. Um, essentially that... Uh, Israelite is strong and, and all these different things. 
within that, in the fourth message, uh, we get some some interesting some interesting bits here. And so I wanted to ask you a specific question within that. I hope my summary was helpful to to some of you. Um, Verse 19 says, a ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Um, That's chapter 24, sorry, chapter 24, verse 19. And it seems very specific, but I read somewhere that this is in reference to Jesus Christ. And so my question is, is this true? Is this about Jesus? Is this about someone else? Um, Could it be about someone else? Or why is it Jesus that this is in reference to? Yeah, so... um... The, I think that actually there's the whole paragraph is what's often taken to be a debate about whether it's about Jesus. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So uh, there are two... There are two people that are usually connected with this prophecy. Um, the first one is David. And David actually seems like the closest fit because he does a lot of these things. He actually has battles with specific people mentioned in this passage. He has victories over Moab and Edom. And so he seems to be a good fit for this description. And I think to a certain extent, we can say David is the one he's looking looking toward. However, this um, this book numbers are clearly um you know it it was uh you know the the bible came together after the um exile well well after david's reign and david did not actually do all the accomplish everything in here so for the people who put who um brought the bible together in its final form to include this would seem to indicate that they believe this is true and yet unfulfilled. And so it does seem to connect or point towards Jesus. And there are a couple of ways that we see it connected to the New Testament, potentially, because this is the first place where the Messiah is connected with a star. So we see the star come up most famously in in the Christmas story, in the sign that Jesus is coming. And everybody seems to recognize that as a connection with the Messiah, uh, is uh, the king of the Jews. They connect a star with the king of the Jews. This would be the main place where they would be able to find that. And so this passage seems to be what led the Magi and Herod and his um, scholars to connect the star with a Messiah. We also see Jesus call himself the morning star at the end of Revelation. So there is a connection with Jesus. That brings up the complication of this very violent warfare imagery uh, that seems to show the person who fulfills this has battles with specific nations and defeats them and like crushes their skulls and and this very violent imagery. Um, and that's challenging to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And I think in that context, we have to remember that uh, a lot of the language like this that's used for the Messiah is figurative and it's Specifically, when you talk about Moab and Edom, those are are traditional. Th- those were groups that were singled out to be not allowed in the tabernacle because they had specifically tried to stop Israel from getting into the promised land. They were their descendants of Mo- Abraham, their their cousins, 
of Israel who specifically, deliberately, and and repeatedly opposed Israel going into the Promised Land and tried to stay in the way of God, stand in the way of God's plan, and that their their you know attempt to oppose God was so egregious that God said they're not allowed on the tabernacle grounds for symbolic reasons because they came to symbolize opposition to God. So the purpose of this language, as, as violent as it is, seems to be connecting Jesus with this tradition of the opponents of God's kingdom to say that his victory will be complete, that he, no one will stop the kingdom from coming, that, that anybody who stands in the way of the kingdom, uh, just like Edom and Moab did, will not be victorious. Now, that doesn't completely make us comfortable with all the language here. Uh, you know, I'm not going to read this passage during the Christmas Eve service. But I, when I come across passages like that, and this this is something I've been thinking about a lot as we get ready for Joshua, I've been thinking that it, it's important to remember that the reason why we're uncomfortable with that violent kind of language is because of the influence of the gospel. That that all the cultures outside of of the gospel, uh, you know, the other the other empires around Israel, none of them would have batted an eye at this kind of language. They wouldn't have found it immoral or problematic. They would have, I mean, they did worse things to their enemies. And so what's changed since the time this was written and now to where we don't want, we don't like this violent language, what's changed is Jesus. Uh, Jesus has taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and uh, all of that. And so this is not the last word in the Bible on how God wants us to treat other people. Um, it's the rest of Scripture that teaches us to to love each other. You know, within Scripture, there, there's just there's so much, and I think going along with talking about uh, Scripture as how you know it's one successive story, right? Um, it just is is interesting to me because there can be so many things that are kind of hidden inside of Scripture. Um, you know, if it were just uh, I forget what, what what exactly you call it. If we're just you know a, a book to go to the, to find all the you know different rules and things that we're supposed to do. It's a reference book. A reference book, yeah. If it were to be that, um, then some of these things would just be expressed, you know, through just you know this is what's happening here, and that might help us out. But because it's a story, there are sometimes things that we can miss. I feel like, and you know, with this whole Balak and Balaam story. It's interesting in, of, in and of itself. There's so many interesting nuances to it. And, um, you know, the whole donkey scene that you talked about a little yeah. bit, that's a really interesting scene to see as well. But there's also some things that happen here where, you know, it's it's referencing it's referencing someone. It's referencing Jesus. And it's like, you know, finding, finding that and discovering that is like, wow, this is so amazing. And that's not to say that if you don't realize that, that, you know, it's going to hinder you from appreciating God or what's happening in the story. But it does bring a kind of a whole new perspective to see within that too. Um, you know, I just I find that beautiful and fascinating and and very interesting. And sometimes it's helpful to just slow down and say, who is being referenced in this thing that Balaam is saying? Um, so I think, yeah, I just find that very interesting. Yeah, there we haven't really talked about them in the sermons very much, but uh, there are points as you read through the Old Testament. It's a theme that comes up slowly at first, and then more and more. This sense that that God's plan is pointing toward a person, and it and it helps us remember that Jesus was always the plan. That the plan was always going to go through Jesus, because from Genesis three into the end of you have another prophecy, the end of Gen, of uh, Genesis, and here in Numbers, and it's, and then you're going to hear more and more and more and more as we get close to Jesus. 
this pointing forward toward a person who's going to uh, bring the plan themselves um, with God. And so, yeah, it's, it's good to have that reminder that it's all connected and it is really leading towards Jesus from the very beginning. We thank you for joining us on the Fully Grown Podcast. We do hope that you'll join us next week as we discuss some other fun things. But in the meantime, we do want to wish that you'd stay healthy. Stay hopeful. And go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.